Well, good afternoon. Just get ourselves settled here with sound. It's good to uh, be together. And uh, Christmas, as we've already said, Christmas is upon us. And I don't know about you, but Christmas kind of brings its own stresses, doesn't it? If you think about it, there's all sorts of layers of stress that, that Christmas adds to our lives. There's the stress of uh, perhaps family gatherings and maybe having to be with some people that you might not usually choose to be with and all the complexities of that. There's all the, uh, the food. That in itself should probably be uh, all we do for one month and then do something else for another month because the food at Christmas is just an astonishing and overwhelming challenge. And so all of that complexity and all the shopping that goes into that. Then there's the presents. There's presents for family, presents for children, presents for the person who has everything, presents for the person who might give you something. You know, then there's uh, just a myriad of people you have to buy presents for, and that's the women. And then the men, you've got one person to buy a present for, and that is enough stress alone, right? Christmas Eve comes, and you're ready to pull your hair out if you can't find something. So there's all the stress of food and presents and people and all of that piling on top of itself more and more, and the busyness and the bad weather and the flu bugs that go around. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's usually some point within December, where I kind of go, I'm not coping with this. I I haven't got it all together. Whether it's a present for wife or whatever it is, there's some point in which the pressure just kind of tells, right? That we have not got it all together. And we can give that impression. We can come to church and smile and, you know, kind of wear our Sunday best smiles and, and just act like we've got our lives sorted. But actually, we all know individually that we haven't. The problem is we think everyone else does. And so therefore we try to keep up and try to be, you know, keep up the mask and keep up the game. But the reality is none of us have got it all together. And it's when the pressure of Christmas is piled on that sometimes the cracks show and we have to admit to ourselves, I haven't got it all together. My life is not perfect. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to do this successfully. Now imagine for a moment that we could bring in a dream team of counselors, okay? the finest and best Christian uh, counselors, the pastors from churches that have just, you know, there's some pastors got an amazing reputation for counseling and caring and understanding. Imagine we could get the best in the world, no expense spared, and we could bring them in, a team of them to spend time with us. To, to listen to us, to probe, to ask questions, to listen more. And, and imagine that they were able to dig into the mess of our lives, all the complexities and all the difficulties and all the struggles, uh, and take as long as it takes to get to the bottom of that. Imagine then that they got together with each other and talked it through and said, okay, can we summarize what we've seen? Actually, I think they probably could quite easily. At the root of all the different messes that we feel in our lives, some relational, some financial, some uh, self-image, some, uh, you know, the complexities of, of what's coming in the future, worries, doubts, fears. In the midst of all of that, at the root of it, there's always an issue with how we view God. Do we trust in his power? Do we trust in his kindness And do we trust that his power and his kindness is personal to me? Somehow it's going to be some element of that at the root of all the complex issues that we have. And all of us are different. But all of us have struggles in that area. 
It's at the root of who we are as humans. And so then, how do we cope with that as Christians? We talk about kind of coping with coming to church on Sundays and sort of putting on a a Sunday face and acting like we've got it all together. How do we cope with that when we open our Bibles and read Bible stories? This sense that God may be not powerful enough or not uh, kind enough or not personal enough. The way we cope with it is we look at the characters in the stories and we make them our role models. We make them the focus. And instead of looking at God and who he is and what he's like, we look at the people and say, yes, I need to be more like that. Or I need to not do what he did. Or I need to never act like that one. And somehow God kind of gets pushed to one side and the stories become kind of stories of role models. And these role models then put the pressure back on us because, oh, I haven't quite got the faith of so-and-so. And we're trying to push ourselves all the time to get our acts together. Now we come to the Christmas story. And the Christmas story has got some uh, interesting characters uh, in it. And uh, it's quite easy for us, I think, to miss the focus of the Christmas story, which is Christ, right? It's quite easy for us to look at the Christmas story and be drawn, depending what passage we're looking at, to be drawn towards some of the other characters, None more so, I would suggest, than Mary. For the past centuries, Mary has drawn attention in a way that I think she would be profoundly uncomfortable with. To take attention away from the child that she bore to her. We're going to look at the story of Mary receiving the news that she was going to bear the son, Jesus, the son of God. And her response, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing Mary at all. She is an absolute hero. Her response is fantastic. Heroine, I should say, but that always sounds like a bad word. Her response is fantastic. Her faith is inspiring. She is obviously a wonderful person, and I'm very much looking forward to meeting her. But she would be shocked to think that she would be the one we focus on. Because really, her focus was absolutely on God. And so as we look at this story, I want us to try to imagine, try to put ourselves, if you like, in her sandals, put ourselves where she was, experience that story. And as we come out the other side, I hope the the net result is that we will have a greater confidence, having stood shoulder to shoulder with Mary, that God himself, the mighty one, is merciful to me. The mighty one is merciful to me. And the more that truth grips each one of us, the more we will be able to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him, maybe in a way that is pleasing to others, but that's not the big issue. It'll take the pressure off, this performance drivenness kind of, I've got to have it all together. I've got to know everything and do everything right because ultimately Christianity is not about us and how we perform. It's about our response to him and what our God is like. And the mightiest one is merciful to me and to you. And so let's look at the passage. It's in Luke uh, chapter one. Whoever finds it first, shout out a page number. Uh, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Sorry, second. 855. Thank you, David. So what's come before this is that the angel Gabriel has been dispatched on a mission to uh, tell 
uh, a senior priest, an older priest, that his wife, who's been barren for years, is going to have a miracle son who's going to be the forerunner, the one who's going to lead the way and prepare the way for Jesus. So John the Baptist's dad got a visit from Gabriel. And then Gabriel gets his next mission. And this next mission, I think this has to be one of those moments where angels scratch their heads trying to make sense of it. Okay, Gabriel, I've got another job for you. You need to now go and announce who's going to give birth to the Son of God. Great. Go to Nazareth. I'm sorry, Lord. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe Gabriel said those words as well. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We'll come back to it. Let me read it to us. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month... That's after the announcement to uh, Zechariah of, of his uh, coming son. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, his ancestor David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." And Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her uh, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Nazareth was a nowhere town. It was a kind of a, a town off a side road, uh, heading nowhere in particular. There was lots of traffic in the area, but you'd kind of have to take a detour to go through Nazareth. I suppose the... the biggest thing around was Sepphoris, a town nearby, which was a garrison town. And so the Roman soldiers would be there a lot. And soldiers, when they have time off, they kind of tend to get away from the barracks and, you know, let off some steam. They'd go to Nazareth. And so this town that was constantly uh, having people passing through because no one would really come there to be there. They'd come there to go somewhere else. People passing through, it would create, it would have created a real kind of a hodgepodge of society, a real mess. And so the very first line that we read, uh, go to Nazareth, the city of Galilee, to a virgin. That would have got a laugh. <laughs> that's going to be hard. Probably not from Gabriel, obviously, but from, from humans. That, that's going to be tricky, Lord. How are you going to find a virgin there? It's like a, it's like a, a, a rest stop on a motorway with soldiers living nearby. <laughs> There's no virgin there. But Gabriel was dispatched to this young lady, unmarried, betrothed to be married, married. Now, she would have probably been 14, maybe 15, 
maybe 13. She was in that kind of age range, a very young woman. And somehow in the midst of the mess that is Nazareth, uh, she seemed to be living a godly life. She didn't fit the stereotype. And so when the angel came and said to her, you're going to have a child, her question is a very natural question, right? Okay, um, how? (laughs) And it's not a question of, I doubt that this is true or I reject what you are saying. It's simply a question of mechanics. Like, seriously, how, how, how can that be? How can I have a child. And so when the, the angel came to her, what he actually says to her here is incredibly lofty language. Just, just look at it again. Um, verse 31. You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. That's actually a very common name. Jesus, Joshua, the Lord saves. But look what it says in 32. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. You cannot give a bigger speech than that. He will be great. That's language used of God in the Old Testament. Son of the Most High. Who who can be the Son of God? It's very high language. To sit on the throne of David over the kingdom of Israel, over the house of Jacob, a kingdom that never ends. This would have set off all sorts of things in Mary's mind. Isaiah 9, a throne uh, forever, a king who's coming to establish God's kingdom forever. This is really impressive. But at the same time, it would have triggered a whole load of other thoughts, wouldn't it? Okay, so I've met an angel, and he's told me that God is going to let me be pregnant, and then I'm going to start to show. You feel the tension of that, right? It, there's, the, there's the, oh, wow, this is amazing, and obviously it was a unique thing to be the mother of the Messiah. But at the same time, here's a teenage girl being faced with the reality that she is going to be pregnant outside of marriage in a gossipy community where she's probably already been ridiculed for her holier-than-thou attitude, which wasn't necessarily true, but it's what people do. They feel awkward around somebody that doesn't live their way. What's she going to say? What's she going to say to her parents? That look of disappointment on her father's face. You saw an angel. Okay. What's his name? Not the angel. What's his name? Oh, what about Joseph? The carpenter who, who had already arranged, uh, betrothed the, the marriage. They're, they're sort of engaged, but engaged plus with a contract. Like this, this is going to happen. We're going to be married. This is going to be a wedding, and, and we're going to be a couple, and we're going to have children. And what in the world am I going to say to Joseph? You saw an angel? a soldier you just imagine her mind churning with all the questions can't you what would the neighbors say what would the the friends of the family say what would the rabbi say what would mom and dad say what would joseph say and at this point in time mary does not have answers to any of those questions she's facing a, a future that is on the one hand absolutely astonishing and amazing, but on the kind of right in front of my face hand, like the right soon I've got to deal with this hand, she's facing a situation that is just one massive question mark. 
How in the world is this going to work? And it's in that confusion and in that complexity that she is able to respond, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That's why Mary gets a lot of praise because that is astonishing faith. Teenage girl facing an absolutely, in human terms, devastated future. And she says, if God says it, I accept it. And we could focus on that and say, you know what, that, that's an example to us. Let's be like that. And there's an element of truth to that, that we face uncertainties. We are drawn into situations that God, uh, by his sovereign uh, hand, kind of creates and orchestrates for us. And we don't know how the future is going to pan out. And we don't know how it's going to work. And, and how, what are people going to say? And are people going to understand? And, and we, we have all those kind of churning questions. And so... Yeah, let's be like Mary and respond, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. But don't pressure yourself with that. Don't let Mary become the kind of arm twist that is supposed to get you going by some sort of act of your determination because that's not the way it works. Instead, let's stay next to Mary and let's listen to her words and let's see what she saw in terms of God, his character, And hopefully as we look to God's character and to what she says, it will stir within us that kind of trust. Not because we work it up, but because he is worthy of it. I love the way that in the midst of this, as Gabriel is giving her this information, he gives her something that I think is an absolute gift. Not just the news about Jesus, but what would be your first impulse if you were Mary? On the one hand, you don't want to talk to your parents. You don't want to talk to Joseph. You don't want to talk to anybody. But she's female. She needs to talk to somebody. That would be true for males too, but even more so for a female. Who can she talk to? And so right in the midst of it, I think Gabriel's sensitive to that. He says, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, who lives a distance away from here, about four days journey, she's pregnant too. Miracle child. I think Mary's heart would have leapt at hearing that. She'll understand. She's someone I can talk to. And so for the next few verses, Mary heads off. I don't know how she she talked her way into that or how she explained it or how that worked itself out. But she headed south to her cousin in this time as the baby was approaching. The birth was coming. And uh, and so she went south to be there and, um, and got to time with Elizabeth. Just make a switch here. And it's interesting, when she gets to Elizabeth, as she arrives there, Elizabeth hears her voice, the baby inside her, John just kind of has a little celebration moment, and, you know, not British, like a real one, like, you know, exuberant one. She feels it, and then she is immediately aware of what's going on. And what does she focus on? She focuses on Mary's faith, Mary's response. Look at the end of the next paragraph, verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So again, great faith, Mary, impressive faith. You see, the thing about Mary is not that she in herself is somehow some kind of superhuman. 
We do that with Bible characters. We make them kind of special. You know, I sometimes say that we, we turn the disciples into stained glass people. Like they floated along the grounds 12 inches above it and, and, and they had halos. And then we read the Bibles and we go, you're kidding me. They said that? They did what? They were normal people who put their foot in their mouth so often. Mary was not a superhuman. Uh, she was a, a good person, a godly person, a woman of faith. But, but she was a weak teenager, frail, full of fears and doubts. You see, what happens when we elevate Mary is that it corrupts our view of God. Let's just think about that for a couple of minutes before we we look at her song. When when we elevate Mary, what we end up doing, and I don't think we're guilty of this necessarily, but it's been a big influence in the church down through the years. It's basically become this idea that Mary is the approachable side of God. Because there's God who's far off, distant, and frightening. But there's Mary, and she's nice. She's like us. She wears blue. You know, and there's, there's God who's angry and ready to judge. And then there's Mary. And if you go to Mary and you talk to Mary, she will be compassionate, and she will be kind, and she will mediate, and she will do all these things for us because her son will obey her. And, and we make something of Mary. But what does that say about God? Now, Mary... I'm not denying that she's probably a lovely, motherly type of figure. When we get to heaven, we'll discover just how nice she is. Maybe she'll bake cookies for her. I mean, there's going to be an incredible loveliness to Mary, but don't let that corrupt your view of God. God does not need Mary to be approachable. God is not angry, cold, distant, throwing lightning bolts down to crush us. He doesn't need his arm twisted. You see, it wasn't that Mary was the approachability of God. She was told, effectively, you are going to bear the approachability of God. It's the baby. It's Jesus that reveals the Father to us. A Father whose heart is to reach out to us, to come towards us, to do whatever it takes for us to to know that he loves us. That was the mission of Jesus. And so Jesus is the the focus of the story, and he's the one we should be looking to because as Mary started to feel the fluttering on the inside, as Mary started to feel the elbows and to see the elbows and all of that stuff that you go through during those months of pregnancy, she was not contemplating how amazing she was. She was contemplating how amazing God is. That God here? God would give this. God would be here. God would come to us. God would fulfill his promises and his purposes and his plans. Mary gave a lot less thought to Mary than maybe we have. This was the approachability of God in a seven, eight pound bundle of flesh. Doesn't get much more approachable than that, does it? A few weeks ago, we we came with Jessa and uh, it was easy to find Jessica. You can never see her. You may have noticed the last few weeks because she's always in the midst of a huddle of people. Now, of course, the Seawrights have uh, had their little one, Adeline, and once the Adeline comes, she'll be the center of attention, and that's the way it should be because babies are incredibly approachable, but you see, Jesus isn't just approachable because he was cute once. He's approachable because that was his mission. 
It was his mission to come into our world to show us that God is for us, that God loves us, and that God is ready to lay down the life of his son for us. Which is why we don't pray to Mary or to anybody else. We go straight to God and we say, Father, Abba, I need to talk to you. I'm coming in the name of your son and I need to talk to you. I've got a concern. I've got an issue. I've got a worry. Let's look at what Mary sang just to reinforce that. This is her song called the Magnificat, traditional Latin name. Uh, just mean, it's just the first word, magnifies. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Notice what she's saying there. She's, she's saying, I am celebrating God. I'm magnifying God. I'm rejoicing in God because God, the mighty one, has been merciful to me. The mighty one, the strong one, the one who uh, is able to uh, overturn anything in this world. He's merciful, he's kind, he's loving, he's giving. He cares for the little person, he cares for the nobody. And he doesn't just do that in general, he's done it for me. And I think if we were able to stand shoulder to shoulder with Mary as she heard this news and as she visited Elizabeth and as she pondered it and processed it, I wonder if that kind of confidence would rub off it on us. That God who is in charge of all is incredibly kind, and that kindness comes to us, those who are his. The mighty one is merciful to me. We've got to have all three parts of that, to have confidence in him, that his strength is sufficient. Otherwise, he may be a nice God who cares about me, but if he's not strong enough to do anything, it doesn't really help, does it? He might be strong enough, and he might be focused on me, but if there's no mercy there, we're in trouble. Or he might be strong and he might be kind, but if it's not personal for us, then we're just dabbling in some sort of religion that talks in platitudes, but it makes no real difference. We've got to keep these three elements together. The mighty one is merciful to me. And so as we stand next to Mary and maybe hear these words gushing from her, these were words that she sang or spoke to Elizabeth. Maybe this was the fruit of her journey south for four days, processing what was going on. And all these words came gushing out. And then she describes God's might and God's mercy. Verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, the truth about God is that God is absolutely 100% in control. When he wants to depose the most powerful human leader, he can do it. When he wants to take power away from, from people or from groups or from uh, organizations or from cells, he can take it away in a moment. He is far, far above everything 
that is going on here in power, in strength, in sovereignty, in providence. He's absolutely the mighty one. And yet Mary is gripped by the fact that he is merciful, that he cares, he's kind, he's gracious. He cares for the lowest of the low. He cares about the, uh, the, the barren woman. She's going to spend time with Elizabeth. He cares about the, the person who's the poor beggar on the ash heap. He cares about them. She's quoting scripture here. She's going back and she's going to 1 Samuel 2 and Hannah's great song of praise when God gave Hannah her son. She's going back to Psalm 113, which is based on 1 Samuel 2, where it starts off by saying, praise the Lord, all the ends of the earth, from east to west, everyone, everywhere, praise the Lord. Why? Because he sits high and enthroned above the heavens, and he humbles himself. He looks down and he cares for the barren woman and the poor, uh, the poor beggar on the ash heap. And he raises the beggar up to sit with princes and he gives to the, to the barren woman children. It's not a passage that says he always does that for everyone. And we know the agony when that doesn't happen. But it's a passage that celebrates that God does that sometimes. And he's done that at key times and he's kept his promises going right the way back to Abraham when he said, you're going to have descendants. And Abraham laughed and said, I'm sorry to say this, but have you seen my wife? She's lovely, but she's leathery. She's ancient. There's no way that she's going to have a child. And God says, you trust me. He gave her a child. And down through the story of the centuries, God has stepped in for the weak and the broken and the the hurting and those who are just really in need. And he's stepped in and he's cared. This great mighty God showing mercy to little nobodies like Mary. And she's gripped by that truth. And she's gripped by the fact that that's for her. Now, how can we get that package? Because that's what we need. It's not that we need to look to Mary and say, okay, I need to copy her and try to work up faith. That's not the way faith works. Faith is a response to something. If we were to stand shoulder to shoulder with Mary, I think the reason why we could end up with that same absolute confidence that she had as a a young teenager is not because of how impressive she was, but because of how amazing God's gift was. Fast forward a few months. As Mary uh, cradled Jesus in her arms, as she looked into his face, she was looking into the face of God the Son, who had chosen to come to us. All the power that created the cosmos wrapped up in her arms, helpless. Why? Because he came to reach us. You see, we're not going to get faith like Mary by looking at Mary. We're going to get faith like Mary by looking at Jesus. And this Christmas, as we see the nativity scenes, as we hear the carols, as we feel the pressure, let's be sure to fix our gaze on that little bundle of flesh, that little desperately crying for his milk kind of baby baby, right? A real baby, fully God, fully man. And let's not fall into the trap. I've heard people say this. It's bordering on heresy. Let's not fall into the trap of looking at Jesus and saying, oh, here's Jesus being compassionate. He got that from his mother. I've heard people say that. I'm not doubting she was compassionate, but why couldn't he get it from his heavenly father? His heavenly father's compassionate. Jesus proves it. 
Could he not get from his father compassion and kindness and love, the love that bleeds red by going to the cross and dying for us? That's exactly where it comes from. And so we thank God for Mary, but we praise God for Jesus. We pray to God because of Jesus. We come to God only because of Jesus. And this Christmas, let's make sure that we stand shoulder to shoulder with Mary and with Joseph and with the shepherds and with Elizabeth and with all the different characters in the Christmas story, the wise men. Let's stand shoulder to shoulder with them and not fix our gaze on anyone except that baby, the baby that proves that the mighty one is faithfully merciful to me. He loves you. Jesus proves it.